a lot of things don't always go your way the first time but you know i think definitely the key to a lot of these things is just to keep on trying and you know try to keep keep yourself afloat and work a way to make thing, things possible sometimes it takes longer than, than you expect but uh that, that's kind of worked for us just keep at it be persistent and uh you know stay determined Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Dr. Angus McLachlan, co-founder and CEO of Liberate Medical. He has a rich academic and professional history that intersects engineering and healthcare. Originating from Scotland, Angus began his academic journey in mechanical engineering at the University of Glasgow. This laid the foundation for his PhD research focused on electrical muscle stimulation for spinal cord injuries. His innovative work in this area eventually led to the launch of his own company, Liberate Medical, which is pioneering non-invasive neuromuscular electrical stimulation to prevent muscle weakening in patients who rely on a ventilator to breathe. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, during the early stages of development, there's not an endless budget to play around with. Narrow your focus to only the core functionality that is needed, leverage existing resources creatively, and cultivate the internal passion of your team to drive innovation forward. Second, rely on your in-house expertise for specialized work. A deep understanding of your product makes you the best person to oversee development or handle niche conversations with regulatory bodies. Third, effective communication is vital in finding good capital partners. Learn to read the room for each pitch and adjust your narrative accordingly to best convey your message. Once you secure favorable investors, keep them in the loop and maintain a constructive relationship for long-term support. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that the latest edition of MedSider Mentors is now live. Volume 4 summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Rob Ball, CEO of Shoulder Innovations, Kate Rumrell, CEO of Ablative Solutions, Dr. Christian Ramdo, CEO of Tempa Health, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups in the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. And if you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. You'll also be able to see all of our playbooks, which are hand-picked collections of the most insightful interviews with the brightest founders and CEOs. Whether you're looking to master capital fundraising, navigate early stage development, tackle regulatory challenges, understand reimbursement, or position your venture for a meaningful exit, MedSider Playbooks have you covered. And last, considering that fundraising can be one of the most daunting tasks for any startup, we created a meticulous database of investors right at your fingertips. Explore a wealth of VC funds, private equity firms, angel groups, and more, all eager to invest in medical device and health technology startups. Access to this database is a premium member exclusive, so don't miss out. Learn more about MedSider Mentors and our premium memberships by visiting MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. All right, Angus, welcome to MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Scott. 
pleasure to be here. Yeah, likewise. Uh, really looking forward to the discussion, and um, especially with you know with a lot a lot happening uh, right with the with, with the company. So, uh, with that said, let's start with your a high level overview of your background. I, I recorded a very brief bio kind of at the outside of this interview, but I'd like to start there. Give us a kind of an elevator style pitch, kind of for your professional journey leading up to uh, co-founding uh, uh, Liberate. Okay. Yeah. Sure. It's definitely all uh, all very connected. So, you know, originally from Scotland and started in mechanical engineering, did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering at the University of Glasgow in, in Scotland. And that was a combined bachelor's and master's program. So in the, the final year of that, I had the opportunity to do a research project for my final year project, which was using a, a brain computer interface to uh, trigger a stimulation system in patients with spinal cord injury so that they can control the, the system. Uh, so that's, that's really where I got int- uh, introduced to research and, and also to stimulation, actually. Uh, and that led me to pursue a PhD in biomedical engineering, which I also did uh, at the University of Glasgow. And in my PhD, it was focused on developing different systems and, and methods of using stimulation applied to the breathing muscles to help patients with tetraplegic or quadriplegic spinal cord injury with their breathing. So lots of different applications we're looking at, including improving coughing, uh, as well as just improving respiratory muscle strength in those patients. Um, but toward the end of, of my research, we did we had an interesting situation where the engineering group, they called it rehabilitation engineering at the time. I think now it's probably called biomedical engineering. But anyway, at the time it's rehabilitation engineering. They had their research space within the hospital, the spinal cord injury hospital. So it was a cool work environment, research environment. And we did have doctors and other clinicians come up with ideas now and again. And so one of them came up with an idea or a patient really that was stuck on mechanical ventilation young guy they tried to wean him from the ventilator and got to about 12 hours a day of breathing by himself but then had become stuck for about four or five weeks using the conventional techniques so knowing what we were doing with coughing and other breathing indications suggested we might want to, to try a case study with him which we did and it was a case study so you can't take too much for it but this patient did come off the ventilator about four weeks later after starting with the stimulation and so that was a if nothing else that was a really cool story and, and just was kind of the start with the idea of, of using stimulation for for ventilator weaning which is, is what we're doing in, in liberate the end again of, of my phd i was approached by a company that was based here in in louisville kentucky called Apelis pharma who at the time were very small they were a startup there were only five or six people now they're a public company. Uh, they're based in in Boston, so they they've left uh, Louisville at this point. But also at the time, they were looking at respiratory indications, CPD in particular for their drug uh, that they were developing. And just by nature of learning about CPD, had an idea for a medical device. Their idea was essentially using the same technology we were developing in spinal cord injury, but they they wanted to apply it in uh, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And so found some research papers that our research group in Scotland had written. And that, that's how we got connected and asked me if I wanted to come to work for them to explore the idea, uh, which which I did. So that's how I made the move from Glasgow, Scotland to uh, almost to Glasgow, Kentucky. There is a Glasgow. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite then. Louisville, Kentucky. But, uh, so, it yeah, wasn't so, the, that, so it wasn't the Kentucky Derby, as maybe some people or, would Or the whiskey. That's, that's <laughs> or the, the bourbon, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess because we're kindred spirits, so the Kentuckians and, and the Scots, from, as far as whiskey is concerned. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Although, funny enough, to be honest, the only thing people really think about in Kentucky, about Kentucky is KFC. I mean, for a long time after I moved, moved here, 
that's what my friends would ask me. It's like, have you been to KFC? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> not, not the whiskey or, or the horse raising, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's how I ended up in, in Kentucky and, um, you know, worked on, I, I was really the only one within a palace that was looking at the stimulation for COPD patients. And so after about 12 to 18 months, they decided they were focusing on, on drug development and wanted to, to kind of spin out the idea. They'd already filed or we'd already filed some patents on an idea. So they asked me if I wanted to continue with the project, which, you know, obviously I said yes. And uh, so we spun out uh, Liberate Medical from a Palace Pharma. And that's how we got started. Oh, got it. Super interesting. And, and you've been at it for quite some time, right? I mean, we're almost 10 years in the making, right? right? 10 plus years yeah. uh, with, with Liberate. Yeah. And I think you're coming off a Series B fundraise, which we'll get into a little bit more detail um, later on in the conversation. But give us a, just a high level sense for kind of what what the product is, and, and maybe maybe pretend I'm a freshman in high school, and, and you're explaining kind of what the technology does and how how patients get access to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the core technology is based on uh, non-invasive neuromuscular electrical stimulation, and so for a basic standpoint stimulation works by playing applying electrical pulses over the motor nerves to cause those muscles to contract um stimulation technology has been around for a while uh, what we've done that's unique is combine the stimulator with a breathing sensor so that we can synchronize the output of the stimulation with a patient's breathing pattern and we can use that for lots of different indications like i said my phd was using it in patients with spinal cord injury when we start to liberate, we're actually primarily focused on patients with COPD patient uh, with COPD that are at home. Um, but as of today, we're we're using it for patients that are on invasive mechanical ventilation as a way of helping those patients come off the ventilator. And, and the basic problem that we're trying to solve is that when a patient goes onto the ventilator, the ventilator is breathing for them, and so their own breathing muscles aren't being used. And just like any uh, muscle in your body. If you're not using the muscle, then it starts to waste away. As it happens in these patients, the muscle wasting happens almost immediately after being placed on the ventilator and progresses really rapidly, particularly over the first five or six days of, of ventilator support. And this puts patients into a situation where the initial disease or, or insult that put the patient onto the ventilator can be treated. And that might be pneumonia or sepsis or, or anything else. But now the patient's sort of too weak to breathe for themselves. And so they go through this process that's called weaning from the ventilator, which is gradually reducing the, the ventilator support until they can breathe by themselves. And as of today, there's really nothing that can be done to prevent or lessen that atrophy of those breathing muscles uh, while the patient's on the ventilator. So that, that's essentially the problem that we're trying to solve with our device. And by using the stimulation, we apply it to the, the muscles while the patient's on the ventilator and because it's synchronized with the ventilator, it, it's applying during the, the ventilator breathing cycle or, or the patient's spontaneous breathing cycle. So it's not interfering with the ventilator in, in any way. Um, and it, it's sort of like a way of strength training or, or exercising the muscles while the patient's on the ventilator and in the ICU is two 30 minute sessions per day and is a way of, of preventing that, that atrophy or muscle weakening from happening essentially. So that when the patient's ready, they're able to come off the ventilator more successfully and in less time than they would have been able to do otherwise. 
Got it. Got it. I imagine, you know, back in, uh, you know, t- 10 years ago when you first kind of, you know, were getting the company out, out of the, out of the blocks, uh, you didn't expect a worldwide pandemic and ventilators to be, you know, such a huge focus. So curious to learn a little yeah. bit more about, about your experiences. Yeah. Uh, during, during COVID with the technology, but, um, for those listening, uh, liberate medical is the website where you can go learn a little bit more about vent free, which is the device that, that, uh, Angus just described liberate medical, just as it sounds, um, L I B E R A T E medical, dot com liberatemedical.com is the website we'll link to it in the full the full write-up on medsider uh for this particular conversation as well as angus's linkedin profile but that's where you can go learn a little bit more about the technology um so angus give us a sense for kind of where the company's at now um you know we're recording this in september of, of 2023 are you actively commercializing the technology yet or kind of where were you, where you at in the, in the life cycle with liberate yeah so the the device is is designed or at least the you know the first generation of, of the devices designed. We do have the CE mark for the product, which was done under the MDD. Um, and then we have the ISO 13485 qualification uh, for certification for our quality management system. And in the US, we do have a breakthrough device designation from the FDA. And it's currently still active. We have an emergency use authorization as, as well from, from the FDA. So, you know, we've made very good progress on the product development and the regulatory milestones. Actually, the focus right now is not on commercialization, but is to complete our pivotal clinical mm. study of the technology. And that's needed, of course, to get the FDA clearance, which we think will be the novo pathway for this device, but also to help gain clinical adoption. I mean, this is really a first-in-class technology. It's not replacing something that's already been done. And so there is a you know a, a certain level of evidence that's that's needed to convince uh, clinicians, the device really wor- works and helps patients get off of the ventilator. And so this trial is is going to help with both of those things, um, convincing clinicians and, and also getting the FDA clearance. So that's the current Got focus. It. A little bit about the trial, we call it the PREVENT study. And to be honest, I've now forgotten the long name of the trial. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier just to say the PREVENT study, but it's going to be, it's roughly 270 patients, randomized, blinded and controlled trial and the primary outcomes time to extubation from mechanical ventilation. And then key secondary outcomes are looking at the physiological endpoints, cough peak flow, which is important in these patients, as well as expiratory muscle strength. And then all of the other ones you would expect, like hospital length of stay, IC length of stay, mortality, et cetera. Got it. Yeah. Joking aside, it always amazes me like that the acronyms that that are kind of used for these these various studies, but prevents a good one, right? I mean, it kind of encapsulates what you're, I guess, what you're trying to do with the, with the technology. Yeah, but, uh, perfectly honest. I, I mean, I always find it kind of ridiculous when you see these things. You know, like people bold <laughs> yeah. a certain letter. I mean, there's to the point where it's not an acronym at all, right? Yeah. And so uh, we just didn't bother with that. We we just decided what we wanted the short name to be and called it prevent. And, and I think there is a way you can force the long title to to become prevent if you bold like random letters in it but um but we, we didn't go that route we just chose the name that we liked and yeah we went for that it so. is it is funny how <laughs> yeah letters are, are taken out of of words to come up with sort of the the short form version of, of what you're calling the study but yeah no totally uh totally kind of fall- <laughs> totally aligned kind of with your with your thoughts on on that so and, and and sorry if I missed this, but you're are you actively enrolling in in the pivotal right now, or or that's sort of the next major kind of in, inflection point or milestone for the for the company is to, is to start enrollment? Maybe or hopefully by the time that this is uh, the podcast is available, we will be actively enrolling. Okay. But, you know, as, as of today, sixth of September, we're uh, you know we just have completed the initiation visits for our first sites. Got it. Um, 
which which are actually in Australia, but hopefully the the, net, the US sites will be uh well we have some scheduled already uh, later this month in in the US and the enrollment should sort of start any any week now. But uh, as of today, we haven't enrolled the first patient. You got you're on the cusp on the cusp of the cusp. Uh, of, of yeah. commencing the, the pivot. Okay, cool. Um, well, exciting times, yeah, uh, for the company, uh, no doubt. But that said, let's let's use the next maybe twenty to thirty minutes to kind of go back in time, right, and cover kind of some of the sure. key functions that you know, and really kind of challenges. I, I kind of like to consider the sort of like act two of of the of the interview, right, where we kind of, kind of cover the the key hurdles that most med tech entrepreneurs kind of uh, encounter along along the journey. And so let's start Absolutely. out with kind of early stage uh, development. You know, especially I think this is especially pertinent considering your engineering background. Um, having having received both a master's and, and, a, and a PhD. I mean, it's so crucial. Everyone that, that listens to MedSite or kind of at, at, a, at least a high level understands the fact that most startups need to be extremely capital efficient in their early days. You're not, you don't have access to, you know, typically endless budget, right, to kind of play around. So you need to kind of um, get your your prototype, iterate on your prototype and get to kind of the next phase as, as quickly and, and efficient as possible. So with that said, what do you think, what are some of the key learnings, I guess, when you, you know, kind of think about the, the very first versions of, of VentFree and kind of moving from alpha uh, to beta to kind of where you're at now, what what has been either some things that you, you did right um, or, you know, things that you kind of learned and, and wish you could maybe do over again? Yeah, sure. Def- definitely. Yeah. Uh... Plenty of those, and and as you said, we were definitely very tight with uh, with cash in in the early days trying to develop these things. So that that was a big consideration. You know, I think a couple of things come to mind that we we I think we did right. You know, in, in the early versions of the prototype, I do think it's very important to work out what's really the core functionality or or the unique functionality with with your technology. In our case, it was really about the synchronization of the stimulation with the patient's breathing pattern, and so. That was where all of our initial development effort was focused on. So for the first prototypes, we weren't, you know, I, I do believe that user interface and usability is important, but for those first prototypes, we really had those as secondary considerations. And we wanted to just make sure we could get the core functionality developed. And so that that really helped focus us and, and you know, focus the team on, on getting that really working very well. Uh, and then related to that is kind of then we, how we actually did the development. And I think you can be, quite creative and, and I think we were quite creative in, in how we put the, those first couple of prototypes together, even the ones that we used for our, our pilot clinical studies. Um, so there's a, a couple of examples of things we did that just saved a lot of time and, and money, I think. Um, first of all, since you know, I, I mentioned, stimulators have been around for a while. And so we were able to find a commercially available stimulator that was used for physiotherapy that had a triggering port in it. Um, and so what we did was just bought a bunch of these stimulators and then we developed a separate device that essentially had the breathing sensor and the algorithm that worked out the timing of the stimulation and interface with that stimulator using that triggering port. So it meant that we were able to avoid having to develop the whole stimulation circuit and get IEC, you know, 60601 testing for that stimulation circuit, which is, you know, a time consuming and an expensive process. We were able to avoid all that just to get our first prototypes and get our first clinical data. So that was that was a huge time saver. Um, and then, you know, that was the sort of general theme of how we put those prototypes together. Even the electrodes, we couldn't find the size of the electrode we want. So instead of making custom electrodes, we bought two that were half the size that we wanted and then connected them together with bifurcation cables. So a, a lot of things like that we used an off the off the shelf enclosure and customized it, bought a cheap 3D printer to make the user interface and the buttons ourselves rather than, you know, custom making a, a, a button pad for, for the device. So 
you know, it wasn't maybe the prettiest thing. And, and it was definitely from a usability standpoint, it wasn't ideal because there was essentially two user interfaces. You had to control the simulator and the, you know, the timing and the triggering of the stimulation separately. But it worked and it allowed us to, to test what we, you know, what, what was really the unique thing about, about our technology in those mm -hmm. those early um, clinical studies. So I think that there was two things that we, I think we did right. Things we learned along the way is, and we did some of this right, but we, we've sort of learned it over time that in terms of sort of building it yourself versus outsourcing, you know, our personal belief is it's most of the time it's better to do it yourself, especially with with some of the technology that's unique to, to what you're doing. Um, you know, I think outsourcing works quite well if you have a well-defined definition of, of what needs to be made. But you know, in those early phases, the sort of, as we call it, the discovery phase where there's a lot of iteration and trying a lot of di different things and you know, you, you never really know where, where the end's going to be. You just have to keep trying things until you get something that works. That can end up being really expensive. Even if you find a great, uh, you know, outside contractor to do that, can end up costing you a ton of money. But the other thing is it's just hard to find people that are going to, and it's not you know, anyone's fault or anything like that. It's just hard to find people that are going to care as much as you do. And, you know, for that stuff that makes your device unique, no one's really going to care as much about getting that working as well as as you do and, and your your team does. So, you know, we we did have some mistakes over time where we we did learn that, and th and that kind of filtered into how we we built our team. So all of our initial team were uh, were on the engineering side, and we did all of that you know, technology development ourselves on on the triggering, and you know we ended up developing the stimulator ourselves as well when we when we got to that point as well as well as all of the the software. So it and now today it's an advantage because we know how it all. Mm -hmm. all works we built it so it's easier to make improvements to it uh, rather than having to go back every time you want to change something to to a third party to to, to get them to make make those changes yeah i always love hearing about kind of the, some of the scrappy stories right of early early stage you know companies where you're you know trying to leverage other other you know cleared systems um etc to sort of fast track that that iterative uh that that very iterative process but i i 100 agree like unless you're <laughs> Unless you have a very unique, unique relationship, right, with the CDMO, where you can sort of, um, mm -hmm. where you're going to get the attention, right, of their, you know, of their best engineers, where that care, you can ensure their care factor is going to be high. If you're iterating very, very rapidly in the early stages, like, you should be probably doing that yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to, hard to outsource that. And I think, I think generally speaking, I'm not sure if you'd agree, generally speaking, this sort of applies to any sort of function, right? If you... I mean, it could, it could make sense, right? If it, it to your point, if, if something is very well defined and it makes sense to outsource, but you could almost always expect that you know, this, the sort of that, that care factor aspect to be a challenge to, that you're going to have to mm -hmm. overcome, right? Because it's it's, yeah. it's not someone else's baby; it's yours, right? And you're gonna you're gonna care yeah. the most about about your baby and kind of pushing it to the next the next sort of milestone uh, that you need to achieve. So let's kind of um, transition to regulatory clinical function. And we, we touched on this a little bit earlier with the kind of the exciting, you know, pivotal uh, trials that you'll, that you're, you're close to embarking on. Maybe by the time this is, this is released, you'll, you'll have actually kickstarted uh, those, those efforts, but you guys, I mean, have, have accomplished a fair amount, right? Breakthrough device designation, I think in early, early 2019, I think which, which reference to yeah. see marking emergency youth authorization during COVID that that's a lot. And this regulatory function can be, you know, generally speaking, kind of complicated, right? Pretty challenging, pretty nuanced, especially with novel technology, right? Um, like uh, like vent-free. So give us a sense for kind of how, how you've approached kind of this this function and, and been able to kind of knock out, you know, really, really key regulatory uh, wins for, for Liberate. Yeah. And, you know, we we've, we don't have anyone on our team full-time that's uh, this regulatory person. Um, and now now we do have a clinical team, but in, in the early days, it was it was me that was, you know, just 
I did quite a lot of clinical work as part of my PhD, but you know that that was what we used to to get through a lot of the uh, the early conversations with with regulatory bodies. Yeah, I think it's kind of along the same lines as what we were just talking about about trying to do stuff uh, yourself as as much as possible. So, yeah, we have worked with definitely you need to work with, and we have worked with uh, experienced regulatory consultants to help us with you know the actual preparation of packages and and. You know, the meetings that we we have with the FDA and, and other regulatory bodies, but you know, I, I think you can learn a lot yourself. So you know, even at first, when we were trying to work out you know F510K versus De Novo, I mean, we never really thought our device was going to be a PMA. Like doing that predicate analysis, you can pay a consultant to do it, but you can also it's not that hard. You can also just work out yourself, find their product codes, find devices, and you know, th- then you have a better understanding of. And you'll probably do a more thorough search again, <laughs> just because it's your, you know, your baby, as as you said. So, and generally speaking, that's what we've tried to do with with the regulatory submission. So we tend to write as much as we can, at least again on the technical side, we know it better than than any consultant is going to be able to to catch up with. And you know, we we've been lucky uh, to find some some great regulatory consultants that have helped us, you know, sort of format that and put it in the in the way that the FDA or, or someone else would like to see and helped us with, you know, with the meetings, there's definitely a certain way to talk to the FDA and other regulatory bodies, which that's, that's really where that uh, regulatory uh, experience from a consultant can, can be valuable. At least it, it has been on, a, on our side, where we don't have an in-house regulatory person. Hmm. So here that's been, been our approach. Yeah. We have had several meetings with, with the FDA. Uh, the pre-sub process, I think is, is definitely really helpful. We've had great interactions with the FDA. They've definitely provided us, a, you know, a lot of good feedback along the way, and you know, we we continue to to engage with them as as we go through the process. So, so that's been helpful. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, think what else I can can say on that. But that, yeah, that's that's some of the main things I think we. I can, we I can see kind of a theme emerging here, where it's like you know, you uh, prefer to kind of do things first, right? Take a swing yourself, understand kind of like. Helps you, helps you to better better understand kind of like the, the direction mm-hmm. and you need clarity on the direction before, you know, beginning to kind of really, you know, outsource a, a function or a key initiative. I got to ask you, though, I mean, considering you got emergency youth authorization, you know, during during COVID, did that like thinking back? Right. I mean, it's been what, three over three years ago now. Did that do you, do you feel like that was a that was a boon for, for Liberate? Like was or, or did it create unnecessary challenges for the company? Um, give us a sense for kind of what that was like, you know, working on ventilator related technology, you know, when that was, you know, yeah, at the attention of, of a lot of people at that at that point in time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think overall it was was definitely good for the company. Um, you know, it, it wasn't the be all to end all that was maybe tempting to think. I mean, I'll say we even thought that at times beforehand like you know that's uh there's gonna be a huge huge takeoff here but um it, it was definitely very helpful you know we got it was quite a blur when we got the emergency we got it fairly early on i think it was june or so mm. i don't remember exactly um so you know, pandemic was announced in march and we, we got it in june um we actually hadn't got our manufacturing set up at, at the time we had the eua <laughs> so it was definitely quite, quite a scramble to get that put together and the sense that we use in our device is actually not the the, you know, the the transducer itself, but the uh, you know the mechanical part, of the sensor that's also used in, in ventilator circuits. So we had some fun trying to source those sensors, even even at the start, getting everything set up. Um, but yeah, we got everything taken care of, um, and then we we had you know several hospitals that, that used the device. You know, we we never actually collected any data formally, which you know, maybe in hindsight we we could have done a better job at that. But it was. Um, 
you know, it, it was sort of a bit, bit of a crazy time. And, and we had some great stories from, from doctors that were using it and some, you know, some personal stories as well. Actually, one of our uh, employees, his, his mother ended up using our device um, to help come off the ventilator, which, you know, which, mm. you know, even though they're just individual stories, they obviously hit home a bit harder than, yeah. uh, you know, than people you don't know. Um, there's also someone local that, that we know here that was aware of our, you know, of our company just you know, from following the local news and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, had a similar story there. It was actually slightly different in that, that case. It was a compassionate use case because he started the therapy when he was on non-invasive ventilation to try and see if it would help prevent mm-hmm. going to invasive ventilation. Uh, and, you know, in that case, he, he was able to avoid the invasive ventilation. So, so that was a great story as well. And, and then we heard, you know, other stories sort of secondhand through the physicians. It was, it's harder to meet patients directly, but, um, it, it was helpful. We learned a lot about the device. Um, you know, I, I think some of the challenges during COVID were it was a crazy time. Most ICUs, I mean, all the ones we spoke to are either had the same number of staff, but double the number of patients or they'd lost. You know, maybe the same number of patients, but they'd lost half half their staff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people were you know, either way you looked at it, people were were really thin on thin on the ground as far mm-hmm. as uh, clinical team was was concerned. Uh, so it, it was just a challenging time to try and introduce a new therapy into the workflow. Is an additional, you know, it's an augment to mechanical ventilation. What we're doing, so it was a new thing people had to introduce. So it, it was challenging in in some cases to to get it introduced un- under those circumstances. But like I said, I think. We had some nice, nice stories. Uh, we were happy to to be able to help out in in the way that we we could during the pandemic, and and we did get some good product feedback as well, yeah. and, and we're able to, to you know kind of build that into the the product development process as well. Yeah, sounds like I, I would I would imagine there's probably some some key learnings, even if it's not you know overly you know quantitative in nature. Um, just to, just to be able to get your get your device kind of in the hands of phys- physicians, use them on patients, et cetera. There's bound to be some some uh, some really really uh, important lessons coming out of that. But just to circle back around your comment, so it sounds like uh, re- with respect to the, the to the emergency use um, the uh, authorization. So it sounds like you, you didn't have a line set up at that point, right? I'm curious, how, yeah. how fast were you able to kind of start building devices that could be used on patients, you know, from the time you got EUA to, to the time you actually were able to kind of hand off product to, to hospitals? Yeah, I think it was around September, if I remember correctly. It, it, was, okay. I mean, it, was, around, it was definitely around that time. Um, you know, maybe it was end of August, maybe it was beginning of October, but roughly September 2020. Yeah, so it's, uh, and it's not like we had, we had already started the process. Yeah. Um, but but it, it certainly was wasn't finished, and you know that that was another challenge as well. That it was not possible to go to the. We were working with a contract manufacturer, and it was close to us in Ohio. But just with you know, all the restrictions and things, it was not possible to go there in person. So you know we were having to to get that all set up remotely over Zoom. Um, you know they they had their own thing. Pe- people were getting sick; they weren't weren't be able to go into work and things like that. So it was, it was yeah. definitely an interesting time to try and get the manufacturing. But you're able to do it though, right? I mean, the reason I'm I'm, I'm asking about this is I, so so many times, and I'm sure it probably relates, you can probably relate to this. And in med tech, the answer is, is almost everyone kind of gravitates towards now. It's not possible. We can't do that. Or we can't do this. And not to say that's always the response, but most of the time people, you know, kind of are are biased towards, uh, they they find ways why why it can't be done or why you can't move as fast. Mm -hmm. And then, and, you know, I think, I think your story of, you know, Hey, look, you were already working with the CDMO. You can actually go there in person to fast track this, you know, the, the development and manufacturing of the device. Um, but yet you were able to kind of find workarounds, find ways to do it. 
And obviously that probably speaks is testament to kind of you, you and your team, but I love, I love hearing those stories, right? Cause I think we need more of them in, in med tech, right? Uh, stories of like why it is, yes, it is possible. You know, uh, yes, you can move fast. Uh, yes, we can do that, you know? So yeah, I think those, those yeah. stories are great to learn about. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.